Hey, welcome to the Past and the Curious. Here's something new from Heine Brothers Coffee, a subscription service, and a code for you to save money. Heine, 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 Heine Brothers Coffee, Heine, 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 Heine Brothers Coffee, Heine, Heine, At work, at home, or on the road, you deserve great coffee. A Heine Brothers Coffee subscription plan gives you top quality organic and fair trade coffee delivered right to your door or office automatically. You select the frequency, the quantity, and the variety of coffee, and Heine Brothers will take care of the rest, shipping included. Also makes a great gift, so order online at HeineBrosCoffee.com. That's H-E-I-N-E-B-R-O-S-C-O-F-F-E-E.com forward slash subscription and use the offer code the past for five dollars off any gift subscription hey everybody welcome to the past and the curious i am the creator and producer mick sullivan I'm excited about this episode because I'm joined by so many of my good friends. Uh, this episode is called Up in the Air, and it happens to be about uh, mostly two ladies who spent a lot of time up in the air in airplanes. The first story you're going to hear is read by Miss Kelly Moore. The second story is read by Amber Estes Thieneman. You've heard her on here before. This month's song is such an earworm it's been in my ear for days weeks maybe even months uh joining me is one of my dear friends suki anderson and i would also like to dedicate this show to my friend laura smalley who had a way of making everyone she met happier and i don't think there's anything that anyone could say that's better than that we love you Bessie Coleman had never been afraid of hard work. In fact, there were not many days she hadn't worked hard since she was a young girl picking cotton on her parents' farm in Texas. Even in those early days, when she wasn't busy working, she was busy learning. Her parents, African-American farmers whose own parents had been enslaved, were not literate. Reading was not something that was a necessity in their lives, and the opportunity to learn never really presented itself. This wasn't altogether unusual for poor farmers of any race in the 1890s, but her mom still clearly understood that it was important for her children to get an education. In their small town of Waxahachie, Texas, there was no library nearby. Wait, what? No library? That sounds like the saddest thing I can imagine. Shout out to our local library, the Louisville Free Public Library. Love y'all. Yeah, it is sad. But every few months, a traveling library would come through town. And as sure as a page turns, Bessie was always there to meet it. So, like a bookmobile? Yeah, an animal-powered bookmobile. This mule-drawn wagon full of books was exactly what a girl like Bessie needed to begin to understand the true size and potential of the world beyond her farm. And she shared this passion with her family, often reading from these borrowed books for a room full of siblings. In addition to helping with farm work and tending to her many brothers and sisters, she took on work as a laundress to raise money for college. She would spend a year at Langston University before running out of money and leaving for Chicago in 1915. She was not alone. 
Many other African Americans began leaving their small farm towns in the South for the big cities in search of industrial jobs, community, and more, in what would become known as the Great Migration. It was here that her dreams would fully develop in her mind. And then, through more hard work and determination, they became a reality. But first, she became one of the most successful manicurists in the African-American community of Chicago, eventually working at the White Sox Barbershop, a successful side business operated by the owner of the baseball team with the same name. At this time, in the midst of World War I, there were some very intense conflicts between the black and white communities of Chicago, often escalating into violence. Watching this, and also seeing many of the men around her head to training camps or to the European front of the war, Bessie was struck with a desire to rise above the conflict and racism that affected her world. And rise above it she would do. Inspired by the pilots of World War I she saw, she resolved to become the first African-American female pilot. But that was just the problem, you see. Or two problems, actually. In 1919, there was no set path for a woman to become a pilot, let alone for a woman with dark skin, such as Bessie. This was wildly unfair, and she knew it, but she wasn't one to let that stop her. Recently, Bessie had made friends with a man who ran an African-American newspaper called The Chicago Defender, and he offered his assistance, both in the way of money, but also through his connections. It turns out that while no one in America would teach an African-American woman to fly a plane, France was quite a different story. Across the ocean, France had seen many women in the sky as pilots since the first balloons were floating through the clouds in the 1700s. The solution became clear. She couldn't get what she needed in America, so she'd go to France to get the knowledge she craved. But with that new realization came a new set of problems. Traveling to France and enrolling in the school would be expensive, and at the school they spoke, well, French. Again, never afraid of hard work, Bessie took a new, better-paying job managing a chili parlor and spent her free time learning the language until she was finally ready to go. To France she went. Bienvenue à l'école d'aviation des Frères Cadron et Le Crotois. These are words of welcome Bessie probably heard upon her arrival to the aviation school in France. And for the next seven months, she lived and breathed airplanes. She saw airplanes in her sleep. The familiar rumble of the engine still tickled her body even when both of her feet were planted squarely on the ground. In order to earn her license, Bessie had to spend huge amounts of time working on the mechanical aspects of the airplanes, learning how the engine worked, managing to do repairs on her own, and she had to spend huge amounts of time up in the air. She practiced the basic skills of flight, as well as more challenging situations, like killing her engine and managing to land the plane safely anyway. It was a dangerous choice she made to be buzzing over the fields of France in the open cockpit planes of the day, and a few of her classmates didn't make it. Crashes were not uncommon. This was a time before commercial flights were a thing. Really, the only pilots working professionally were in the armed forces. There were no jet flights to American cities, and there weren't any UPS planes delivering goods high above throughout the day and night as there are now. U.S. airmail was just getting off the ground, 
and the likelihood of a woman like Bessie getting hired for a job like that was pretty small. Bessie realized to make a living with her new skills, she'd have to join the popular form of high-flying entertainment and daredevilry known as barnstorming. These shows were a huge draw in America at the time, with people buying tickets for the thrilling experience of watching fearless pilots loop the loop, stall and dive, buzz the audience, and more. Sometimes rides were sold to the eager audience members. Think about it. In the early 1900s, Most people had never seen the world from above. A bird's-eye view was an amazing perspective, and the idea of a new machine boasting power, speed, and grace high in the sky was simply amazing. It must have been terribly exciting for the people when the show came buzzing into their town. Shortly after each show was over, the planes and tents and people would be packed up and ready to go, and off to the next town they'd head. For many years... Barnstorming was one of the most successful forms of entertainment, and Queen Bess, as she became known, became one of the biggest barnstorming stars of them all. She was proof that anyone could be capable of things like this, and she became an idol to her community. She was also really good. As her career developed, she grew increasingly daring, and she had a personality to match— Something that made her unusual at the time was that she was more than happy to talk about how good she was behind the wheel of her biplane. And people ate it up. They loved her boasts as much as they loved her buzzes and barrel rolls. Her shows attracted people of all walks of life, which created a problem more than once. Before one performance... Bessie found out that the African-American audience was going to be required to use a separate entrance from the white ticket holders. This was the very thing she set out to defy, and she refused to perform unless all ticket holders were ushered through the same door, which is exactly what happened. Bess believed the show was the most important thing, since it was what people came and paid to see. Once there was another woman on the bill who was to parachute from a plane in the midst of a daring trick. When the time came, the lady was nowhere to be found. Looking out at the audience who would probably angrily ask for their money back, and then back at her fellow barnstormers, Bessie volunteered without missing a beat. Strapping on the parachute herself, she made the jump to a round of applause. For five years or so, Bessie's career in the air continued. She never made a fortune, but she earned a respect that meant the world to her. Sadly, she died in a plane crash in 1926 at the age of 34 on her way to an engagement in Florida. Though she never got to realize her ultimate dream of opening a flight school for African-American pilots, her inspiration is felt to this day. Several schools bear her name, as do streets in her cities of Waxahachie and Chicago. There are sites at four major airports named in her honor, but perhaps the most appropriate is the Bessie Coleman branch of the Chicago Public Library. For a young lady whose life was changed by a mule-powered traveling bookmobile, we can't think of a higher honor. Dudes, we have a new partner, and they're perfect.
The History List is a great resource to find out about the historic sites and events that you might need to plan your next trip. And they have History Nerd shirts, sweatshirts, caps, stickers, and more for history lovers and all sorts of unique items from historic sites. For being a listener of The Past and the Curious, when you go to thehistorylist.com and make a purchase of $25 or more, you'll save $5 on your first purchase when you enter The Past and the Curious. All one word, no spaces, no ampersands, no nothing. The Past and the Curious as the discount code. Thank you for listening to The Past and the Curious, and thank you to our new friends, The History List. I'm like the white rabbit. I'm always wondering what time it is. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Time, time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Quiz time. The first person to pilot an airplane flight in Australia was famous for many other reasons, but especially as an escape artist. Can you guess who it was? In 1910, just north of Melbourne, Australia, none other than Harry Houdini took to the sky in his $5,000 French biplane. It didn't look like a biplane that we know now, but more like a box kite, and the propeller was actually behind the pilot seat. He flew for six miles that day, and it took him seven and a half minutes to do so. After leaving Australia, he never flew again. Question number two. Do you know when the first official airmail service began in the United States? In 1918, flights began delivering parcels between New York and Washington, D.C. By 1920, pilots began flying all the way across the country. To this day, there still remains giant concrete arrows on the ground in the Midwest and the West. These were directions for the pilots to follow to be able to see from the sky as they flew from New York to San Francisco. Later, to enable flying at night, a path of towers with beacons of bright revolving lights were constructed along the path. Pilots could follow this highway of light to safely make the trip on the darkest of nights. And question number three. Do you know which famous European Renaissance artist, and if you listen to our last episode, you'll know a little bit more about the term Renaissance, which Renaissance artist designed several early flying machines. Though he never saw them built and working, Leonardo da Vinci was obsessed with the idea of seeing the world from a bird's eye view. So he made very detailed plans for two vehicles. One, the air screw, was a sort of pedal-powered helicopter. The other, often called the flying machine, was inspired by bats and made from silk stretched over a light wooden frame. When its pedals were turned, the 33-foot wingspan wings would flap and the pilot could steer it with his or her head. Or at least that's what Leonardo envisioned. 
Amelia Earhart had set foot in the White House before. Just a month prior, she had met with President Franklin Delano Roosevelt on the heels of her transatlantic flight when she became the second person and the first woman to fly a plane across the Atlantic Ocean all alone. But this night in April of 1933 was a different occasion, to say the least. A dinner party with the First Lady required her to dress in fine evening wear, prepare herself for sophisticated conversation, and mind her manners as the courses of the meal were served to her and the other guests. The White House was a special place to dine, so she was certainly excited. But she had also been looking forward to spending time with a woman whom she greatly admired. It turns out the First Lady, Eleanor Roosevelt, greatly admired Miss Earhart as well. The dinner was quite nice as the two ladies, joined by a few others, conversed around the long table. Much of the conversation revolved around Amelia's adventures. It was only natural, one might suppose. She had quickly become one of the most famous people in America and an inspiration to women the world over as a result of her high-flying adventures. It hadn't always been that way. She had originally set out to become a doctor, but put those plans on hold to move out west with her family. It was there that she would first begin to feel the pull of the sky. Amelia told the table about how as a 10-year-old girl, she had seen her first airplane— but she wasn't really impressed. Underwhelmed, she begged her parents to take her back to the merry-go-round, even after her father suggested she take a ride in the plane instead. However, several years later, she found herself at an airfield for an air stunt performance with a friend. When one of the planes flew very close to where she was standing, she said she felt something unusual. I did not understand it at the time, but I believe... That little red airplane said something to me as it swished by. It was later when she was in California and she took a ride with the pilot Fred Hawks that she truly understood what her future held. I knew I had to fly. Amelia learned that there was a woman in California by the name of Anita Snooks who offered flying lessons at a price of $1 for each minute of time in the air. At the time, a pilot's license required 20 hours of airtime with an instructor. Amelia didn't blink. She had managed to save up $1,000 and went to Anita saying simply, I want to fly. Will you teach me? Now, Anita wasn't going to say no to someone waving a wad of cold hard cash in front of her face, but she also thought that beyond the money, maybe there was something unusual about this determined young lady. And she was right. Amelia paid for her first five hours of flight training, but the remaining 15 hours were pro bono. Anita was so impressed with Amelia's skill and determination that she didn't charge her for the rest of their time together. Instead, Amelia used the rest of her money to buy her very own plane, a bright yellow biplane that she called the Canary. But before long, hard times fell on her family and she had to sell the Canary. Using some of the money to buy a car, she would drive back east, working several different jobs to make ends meet. In Boston, she found a job that made her feel like she was making a difference. Teaching English to immigrants at a settlement house helped her understand the advantages and disadvantages that various people in society held. As a result, she nurtured a desire to help people, especially women, find safety and equality in an often cruel big city. This cause was near and dear to Eleanor Roosevelt's heart as she worked tirelessly throughout her life to fight for women's rights and to stand up for the poor and downtrodden. The subject was discussed at the table, but not in great detail. This was a dinner party, after all, and Eleanor had hopes for a fun night. 
The magic and mystery of the air were things Eleanor dreamed about, and she desperately wanted to know more about flying. She had done so herself several times, but never in the pilot seat, and never alone. She hoped that would change. Inspired by Amelia, Mrs. Roosevelt had been thinking about applying for her own pilot's license. She pictured her potential future in her mind. What a pleasure it must be to hang alone in the clouds, so close to the stars with nothing but your own thoughts and wonders. Amelia finished telling her stories between bites of dinner and regularly expressed her admiration for Eleanor's commitment to her values. More stories were punctuated with laughs, and other times their words were spoken in soft, hushed tones, as if they were telling secrets to each other at the dinner table. Sometime between the main course and dinner, an idea was floated to the table. The mischievous thought on wings seemed to buzz in each head and bring smiles to faces. All this talk of flying had excited Eleanor and Amelia, naturally. And as First Lady, Eleanor Roosevelt surely had access to a plane and a pilot. And that she had indeed. So it was decided. Maybe they'd eat dessert when they returned, or maybe they wouldn't bother. Perhaps the fluffy white clouds and sparkling stars would be more than enough to satisfy them for the night. They were going flying. Less than an hour later, the dinner guests found themselves in a twin-engine Curtis Condor. The airfield regulations required that two pilots take them on the journey, so Amelia took a passenger seat next to Eleanor and the two gazed out the window, giddy at the sight of Washington, D.C. below and the stars above. Their connection deepened and the pilots settled the plane into its cruising altitude. Amelia was not one to sit in the back of a plane for long and eventually got another idea in her head. It's doubtful that the pilots were surprised to see Amelia Earhart in the cockpit door, and they gladly let her have a turn in the seat flying the plane. It was bigger and less responsive than her own beloved airplane, but it was always a great feeling to be seated in the pilot's seat. There was one first for her, though. She had never flown an airplane in an evening gown and long, white, fancy gloves. As experienced as Earhart was, the pilots were probably a little more nervous when Amelia got up and invited Eleanor Roosevelt to take her place. Now this brought all kinds of firsts for her, but she was the first lady, so it seems kind of appropriate, don't you think? What a thrill it must have been for Eleanor to sit in that seat, with the controls at her fingertips. The plane soared high in the night sky with a moonlit America below. Earthbound citizens would be washing their faces, brushing their teeth, reading books to their children, while up above, two of the most famous women of all time were playing hooky from a fancy meal in favor of having a little bit of fun in the air. We're not sure if they ever got back around to dessert, but Roosevelt carried the momentum from that thrill of the pilot seat with her for a while. She actually applied for that pilot's license she'd dreamt about. Unfortunately, she was talked out of pursuing it much further. People were worried that something could happen to her. She was the first lady, and they couldn't afford any accidents. It would be tragic. If you ask us, she could have handled it. How cool it would have been to have a pilot first lady. But that's not to say she didn't fly again. She did, many times. Another flight that made history was when she flew with one of the Tuskegee Airmen, these men were part of a regiment of African-American military pilots that began during World War II. Before this time, the U.S. military had never employed an African-American pilot. 
While visiting the men, she was invited to take a flight by a pilot who called himself Chief Anderson. She gladly accepted, despite the protest of the guards who were assigned to protect her. One of them called her husband, FDR, to tell him what she was planning to do. He replied, well, if she wants to do it, there's nothing we can do to stop her. Of course, Amelia continued to fly for the rest of her short life. She disappeared in 1937 when her plane lost contact somewhere in the Pacific. Though President FDR authorized a $4 million search for her, she was never seen again. episode number 16 thank you as always for listening it's really a privilege to create this for you and we're so happy that you are listening i have to thank two new patreon sponsors right here in louisville kentucky dustin thank you dustin and i need to thank from down in mississippi mrs jean we can't thank you enough your support means so much uh i gotta say hi to Benjamin, who is somebody that I met in person at my regular day job, which was awesome. Hi, Benjamin. Uh, And I also have to say thanks to Andrea Jane, AJ, my good friend AJ Cornell, for lending her her voice for that bit of French that you heard in there. Thanks, AJ. Uh, Go check out Kids Listen. We've got some awesome friends that are making great, great stuff. And uh, 
Find us on iTunes, subscribe, follow, leave a review, anything you can do to help spread the word. Thank you all so much. We'll see you in January. Actually, no, we'll have a surprise bonus episode. Get hyped in the middle of December. Our holiday episode, second annual. If you want to go back and listen to the pickle episode in preparation, be our guest. We'll put it up on our website. Thanks again. We hope you have a wonderful winter break. 